Hey everyone, welcome to After Office Hours. I'm your host, Quinn Collins. Uh, on the show today, we have Dr. Astrid Rungledeer and Milady Costco, uh, which is pretty much my first experiment with two guests. Uh, but before I give a quick bio for each of them, I just want to make a quick announcement for the Noc- Nocturnal Literary Review, which is the official Plan 2 magazine. So, unfortunately, if you're not in Plan 2, this will not apply to you. But, um, the fifth issue is coming out this spring, and they're looking for your writing. So submit poetry, short stories, and nonfiction. Whether or not you're an English major, they can get you published. This is only for Plan 2 students, like I said, unfortunately. Uh, but it's a great way to start any community-wide conversation you guys would want to have. So send everything to planiilit at gmail.com. And they have a new website, so check that out as well. So now let's get back to introducing our guests for this episode. Dr. Esther Ungledeer is the assistant director of the Mesoamerica Center, and her research specializes in Mayan culture and in anthropological approaches to architecture, households, and built environments in the context of ancient civilizations of the Americas. Uh, Meanwhile, Milady is the on-site coordinator at Casa Herrera, which is in Antigua, Guatemala, It's a cultural heritage site, um, and it provides a major venue for research and teaching of pre-Columbian art and archaeology, um, and it definitely helps facilitate dialogue and cooperation among scholars and students from all kinds of backgrounds. So, you know, accordingly, Millie leads a lot of educational conferences and activities at the CASA, and she organizes um, a lot of faculty and student visits. Um, so she plays a very important role in that, um, especially on study abroad trips. So that was just a quick bio. Um, you know, it doesn't nearly cover what they've done and what they've achieved. Um, but I just wanted to give you guys an idea of what they're about. And in case you guys want to learn more, you can definitely reach out to them in the future. Um, so without further ado, let's jump into the conversation. Uh, also, a quick disclaimer, for some reason the audio for this recording was kind of off, um, so I apologize for um, the bad quality, but I'll figure out um, an optimal positioning of the microphone um, as I as I go along with this, so please bear with me um, and enjoy the conversation. All right, great. So welcome to the show, professors. <laughs> I'm just going to use a collective uh, term here. Um, but to begin, could you guys each talk a little bit about your background, maybe how you got to UT and what classes you're involved in? Sure. Um, well, I'm Astrid Valodier, and um, I'm the assistant director of the Mesoamerica Center, and I came to UT as a Mesoamericanist, because that's what I'm interested in, my research and background. Um, and uh, so I got involved with teaching and art history, and uh, in particular, uh, taking students to study abroad programs, which is how I met you. Yeah, yeah. I had to teach her somewhere in there. Yeah. How, how do we know each other? Um, and uh, so right now, I'm here in art history, the Mesoamerican Center, and occasionally at Casa de Guatemala. And I am Lady Costco. Um, everyone knows me as Millie. Uh, I'm the programs manager at the Tesarreta and the Mesoamerican Center. Um, I originally came to UT in 2007 as a graduate student. I got my master's degree in art education here in the art department. Um, I originally come from California. Um, I come from an arts background. I have an art history degree. Uh, and before coming to Texas, I was working for uh, performing arts and visual arts centers, both in California and in Spain. So how did you guys, I guess for the listeners who don't know, Casa Herrera is a heritage center in Guatemala, in Antigua, Guatemala. Yeah, we should um, give a little background. Yeah, yeah, maybe just, what's um, the connection there? The name doesn't say much yeah. by itself, but it's actually, um, it's named after the family who owns the property of the building uh, that our research and education center is based at. And so Casa Herrera is a UT facility. Um because it serves a number of UT programs, uh, in particular study abroad programs, but also scholarship programs, um, scholarly programs like conferences, um, research programs, and things like that. Um, 
and uh, we just refer to it as Casa Vera, or sometimes even more colloquially as the Casa. Mm. And uh, so when we're talking about it here at the Mesoamerica Center, we call it the Casa. And uh, it's a building from the, the 1680s, considerably older than mm. campus buildings. Um, Maybe it's kind of, I guess we could describe it as the oldest building at UT, <laughs> uh, not physically located in Texas. Uh, but it's it's located in Antigua, which is um, a colonial city in uh, Guatemala uh, that used to be the capital, actually, of uh, the capital of New Spain and the kingdom of Guatemala. Mm. Um, up until the late 1700s, after a series of earthquakes, um, when the capital moved to the current location of Guatemala City. And so from that point on, um, Antigua became uh, sort of, um, I guess, almost a, a kind of a historical snapshot in time uh, that to a lot of people feels like you're just walking into the colonial period. The buildings are protected and maintained um, to reflect that colonial history. Um, to some people, I guess it could feel a bit like a ghost town also. Uh, but it's so colorful and lively these days that I think that's, um, you know, that people have different experiences of it. Uh, but it is a UNESCO uh, protected World Heritage uh, site. So that's part of the reason why things are maintained with the colonial outlook that you experience. Right. That we all miss sometimes. Um, that's also why it has all the modern commodities and uh, locations of international um, food locations mm. of various Burger Kings and McDonald's. <laughs> Papa like John's, yeah. But, but they're not so recognizable from the street because yeah. UNESCO requires that um, sort of the, the ugly part of contemporary signs and uh, wires and lights and things like that be concealed in tasteful ways so that oh they, really yeah interesting actually, okay i didn't know that yeah there's a bit of legislation that that requires unesco sites to uh, maintain a certain kind of um, uh, protected status and mm. so those those things that are often um you know, the, the kind of sprawling ugliness of uncontrolled development mm -hmm. is exactly the kind of thing that UNESCO protects hmm. from. So that's why Antigua looks the way it does. Right. If, if, if nobody were regulating that, I think it would be very much like any other city. Um, but it's precisely because its status as a colonial, important city to um, for its colonial history uh, requires that everybody's work with the regulations about maintaining it that way. And Casada fits right in there because, again, from the outside, well, even from the inside. Yeah, yeah inside, It yeah. looks like yeah. it could be, you know, in the 1700s, yeah. maybe the 1800s. But um, it's the kind of place that if you take black and white pictures of, you could you could pass it off very easily as something yeah. from the past. Right? No, for sure, yeah. <laughs> so so Casa Vera, um fits right into the history of Antigua, the buildings of Antigua, um, the events, historical events, and um, the development of, of this unique um, Latin American heritage that mm -hmm. you know, Guatemala and Central American countries have. Right, because it also houses certain artifacts, right? Um, from what I remember, and I was wondering if there was, you know, maybe a favorite piece that you guys really like or can describe in detail, so that our listeners, even though they're not in mm -hmm. Guatemala, can have a taste for it. Uh, I think I know what my favorite is. What do you? What is my favorite? You've lived there so much longer than anyone. Yeah, I know, right? Kind of scared to think about. Eight years of my life. Wow. Yeah. I think my favorite. I think my favorite artifact in the house is the. Well, it's. I'm flipping in Spanish. I'm flipping in Spanish. It's not the original stone top of the casa. It's uh -huh. probably, from what I've heard, probably got salvaged in the early 1800s. But what we call a boyo in the kitchen. Mm. Right? I love it because even though it's not, it's supposed to be functional, right? You're supposed to use it as a stone top and everything. Mm -hmm. But the fact that it's become such a centerpiece of 
you know, we have students or professors or, you know, groups that come through. Uh, people always seem to congregate to that one spot in the kitchen, right? It's, it's very centralized. Um, it's a meeting place. That's where I always have my lunches. It's funny, like, I don't really have my lunch or my meals outside in the courtyard. Area, yeah. But I really like kind of staying in that space. Even though that particular piece isn't meant to be a table. Um, I don't know. I just, that's, that's my favorite, I think, out of the whole house. How about you? Mine's in the same room. Really? <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I would say that for me, it's not really an artifact in the sense that it's not you know, a portable object, but it's a feature of the architecture. Mm -hmm. And it's the cupola, or the, the, um, the roof and the lantern of the dome roof of the kitchen. And that's a feature that's typical of Antigua as a whole. So I think when you stand on the rooftop and you look out at the city, mm -hmm. you spot all of these, um, the, the lanterns of the domes, um, that means that underneath there is a kitchen. And, uh, and so we have one at the Casa also. It means that when you're inside the kitchen, you have this really lofty ceiling above you. And I think that's one of the things that makes the biggest difference for me in knowing that you're somewhere different, that you're no longer in Austin. Right. right, and that you have this really incredibly high ceiling, that you feel like you're in some monumental space, but it really is the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, and that's the part that I think is, and you know, it's directly above uh, right. the stove area that Millie is talking about, yeah. and I think it does to me too feel like that's the heart of the casa, even though mm. it's a research and education place. Um, the part that makes it house, a casa, mm -hmm. is that it has these residential aspects to it, and that kitchen as a congregating space or a reminder that that used to be a house in the past. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's important to everybody there. It's, it's yeah, I, I think it's the most, one of the most impressive spaces in the house. You know, every time I, I do a lot of tours for people who are passing through, mm -hmm. um, who want to see the facility, and every time I take them to the kitchen, right, and they see this old stove top, they see the cupola, they see the wood fire oven, right? And how we have the, the clay dishes on top of the stove top. Mm -hmm. It really makes an impact. Um, and I, I always love it because it's always like, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a monumental kitchen. It's a monumental kitchen, it is. And um, it's a very special space. Huh. Do you see that space changing at all in the future, like maybe with renovations or repairs or something like that? Because I think that's always... I don't want to say it probably a bane, right? Like some something that, you know, historians or people who really appreciate art really hate that, you know, you're trying to change the past to accommodate for the future. Know. Right? Is that a possibility or I don't think we would ever change it if we could keep it that way. It's also not just our decisions. Right? Oh, because I see. again, the, the the building itself is one of the protective buildings in the city. As as part of the UNESCO protections, there's also a council for the protection of colonial buildings in mm -hmm. town that is a Guatemalan entity. And any change you make to a protected historical building needs to go through several rounds mm. of approvals. So it's not okay. something that even if we wanted to, we wouldn't be able to just just replace it. Oh, I see. Okay. So I think it's um, it's slated to be that way for several more centuries, hopefully. Uh, but we do have to struggle with with the difficulties of modernity because we have a dishwasher in there, for example. Mm -hmm. We have microwaves and water and all of those things. Um, but the humidity of just of living in the tropics in the first place and operating something like a dishwasher in that kitchen means that we regularly have to repair the wall behind it <laughs> because mm, um, the humidity does affect the, the stuccoed walls and things like that. So mm -hmm. it's more of a pain to maintain a kitchen like that than a modern kitchen, you know, in a house here. But somehow it feels worth it. You know? Yeah. And it has its challenges. I mean, it's always a negotiation, right? I mean, we're always trying to maintain as, as best we can the, the original, the, the integrity of the home, of the, the architecture, of the things that we have in it that are original to the house. Um, but at the same time, you know, trying to make sure that we have the things that are necessary to make it functional for people who are coming from Austin or from other parts of the U.S., right? Um, and just other challenges, like, you know, you, you know very well yeah. that there's really no interior space in Antigua. Right. right. 
outdoor indoor dynamic where yeah. you're inside a building but it has a lot of open space. Yeah, yeah. Right? So I know right now, you know, the big problem at Casa because we have three residents who love to cook, right? Uh -huh. are little mice that love to come and eat everything. Uh, so it's see. stuff like that, you know, that we deal with. But um or for example the yeah my challenge is the Wi Fi. Oh, the walls are yeah. so thick in the whole building of Cascadetta. That <laughs> finding a good wi we have, we I think we have something like eighteen airport. Um oh, but yeah, they do repeat room, you know, to repeat oh, yeah, the signal yeah. and kind of spread it throughout the building. Um and it's still a super challenging uh, issue to deal with. And the kitchen in particular is so uh, the walls are so thick that the space feels really insulated from the rest of the house mm -hmm. architecture. Mm -hmm. And when you're in there, it's almost impossible to get a signal. And I like to cook. And when I live there, I like to cook and I like to stream radio from Austin. <laughs> so I have I kind of become used to um, using streaming radio as a way to feel at home, regardless oh, of where I see. I'm working. Yeah. You know, I work in Belize. I work yeah. in Guatemala. I uh, was born and raised in Italy, and so I go back there to visit my family. And wherever it is that I go in the world, I have found that streaming something that is familiar to you, like your own radio programs you're used to listening to at home, mm -hmm. is a way of feeling immediately grounded. And uh, so that's something that the pasta kitchen yeah. is challenging for me because. I like to cook. I like to listen to KUTX. I can't seem to get that to work there, and so I have to put my phone or something out yeah. in the courtyard and hope that it's wide enough that it gets to. Oh, the I see. So I always had different strategies, long cords and things, and you know, well, stuff like that. But but those are the kinds of things that yeah. you know you're asking. Um, how do you how do you know you're living in a different place when you're adjusting to right. things like that? Yeah, but it's interesting that you bring up. Uh, you know, having a connection back to home, even while you're in a foreign place. Because mm -hmm. uh, I think that it's really common for people when they're traveling to miss home, right? Especially for long periods of time. I think Millie especially, right? I was wondering if you guys have any strategies to cope with that. Because you said, you know, streaming, I... <laughs> yeah, streaming, streaming the radio. But, yes. um, that's a good a lot of people use music whether it's streaming or your own you know musical preferences yeah. you know your own records if people still have those yeah. uh, but i think music is an important one yeah meals like cooking things that remind me of my mom mm. you know? yeah it was funny because when i first went to antigua the, the supermarket in town of Oligona, mm -hmm. which is like the most again, super disorganized, but having a little bit of everything. Yeah, um, I think I spent twenty dollars on a towel there because I, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was that was a mistake. <laughs> but yeah. But I mean, compared to when I first moved to Antigua, and I can't even imagine what it was like when Astrid probably first started uh, arriving in Antigua, um, if it was there. Um, oh, the Oligona was yeah. probably there. There, there wasn't a lot of, you know, like maybe like prepackaged foods that I was used to buying when I lived in Austin. Mm -hmm. Before I went to Antigua, I lived in Austin for three and a half years. And so I really had to force myself to kind of relearn how to cook and, and really think about the kinds of things my mom used to make that I loved, that I could replicate the best that I can mm -hmm. with the ingredients that were, made, were mm -hmm. available to me. And it was funny because I, I had the same conversation with... Um, Another professor who goes to Casadera, he's, he's gone three times to these secondary groups, and I was talking with his wife, who's uh, from Mexico, Michoacan, mm. and she'd asked me, she's like, Millie, what was you know your biggest challenge when you moved? And then she said, you know, I never told you, but mine was food, because I wanted to make the dishes that you know were special to me from my country, and I just couldn't find the ingredients sometimes, and it drove me crazy. But you do the best you can. Yeah. And if you're able to accomplish it, like for me, that just gives me such a sense of like being home, being home with my family. That's really important for me. Maybe that's yeah. also why we both mentioned the kitchen at Casa Rera. Yeah. As a yeah. space that feels like, you know, you asked us about like an important artifact or something that's, you know, about the house. And yeah. you mentioned something that's really more about the atmosphere, the environment, the mm -hmm. place it creates rather than the thing itself. Yeah. Um, and I think that for me, because you know, as a as a faculty 
going to Castaneda, I get to live there, which is wonderful. Right. Um, sometimes you struggle with living and teaching and everything all in the same place. <laughs> um, but I think what was really valuable to me was to have access to that kitchen and being able to carve out sort of some personal space around cooking and around making my own meals. Like, as Millie was saying, um, creating the kinds of meals that you would eat at home or things that make you feel particularly happy to be cooking. Uh, and so the kitchen was important for me for that reason. And, and when I first started coming to Antigua, which I guess um, would have been back in 2000, there was no Casadera at the time. That was about a decade before we inaugurated Casadera. In fact, there was a building there because, as I mentioned, it dates to the 1680s. Um, but it was in complete um, decay, you know, caved in columns and everything. It would, it's almost unrecognizable if you see the pictures of what it used to look mm. like. Um, but, uh, so even though there was no Casarera proper or no UT center, and I certainly, I didn't work at UT at the time, I was a student, I was a graduate student at Boston University, and I was doing my field research in Guatemala for my dissertation, and Antigua was our base. That's where we would congregate, that's where the team would assemble every year, and we would go to the jungle for months at a time. But our base was in Antigua, our lab was in Antigua for when we came out of the field to process all the ceramics and materials. And so Antigua quickly became a focal point, kind of a home away from home, mm. uh, for anybody working for that project. And uh, and at the time, I remember, well, the Polidora was certainly there. And like Millie said, you never really knew what you would find there. <laughs> you couldn't really plan around a recipe you had in mind. Like, maybe, maybe not. Uh, you might find a great ingredient one day that was really special to you for some reason, and then never find it again. Mm. <laughs> Those yeah. kinds of things. But there was another store that no longer exists, that exists and that hasn't existed for a while, that people colloquially referred to as the Gringo Grocer. <laughs> I think mostly, um, let me specify. Should have gone mostly there, but. Expat <laughs> communities uh, would refer to as the Gringo Grocer. Oh, interesting. Because you could buy the kinds of things that Millie was saying, you know, you could really not find very easily. And sometimes it was just simple things, like it was a, um, maybe maybe a brand of peanut butter that you were used to or something. Yeah. And so you'd find that on the shelf and feel all warm and fuzzy, like you know, <laughs> you know like a closer to home for that one item. <laughs> and we take that stuff so, so for granted these days. Yeah. That, you know, globalization has also allowed the circulation of the same goods across huge areas of the world. And We've come to expect that, and we come to think that you know certain brands of things or certain kinds of ingredients or things like you know should show up anywhere you go. And uh, and so it was, it's interesting to think back about you know when I first started going to Antigua, that was certainly not the case. These days you can find all kinds of things there, yeah. and there's definitely yes, I mean. Like now you can find Asian products in the Bodhidharma, which really wow. Never, I mean, when I first moved there, I love Asian food growing up in California. And when I went there, it was like, wow, <laughs> I can't find anything, right? Unless I go to yeah, you know, yeah. a Korean restaurant in Guatemala City. But, um, but now, because of there's just such a huge influx of you know, um, expats you know, mm -hmm. from all over the world that are coming to Antigua. Um, now they're they're catering. I feel like they're catering a lot more of the products that they bring in to this community, yeah. which is it kind of reminds me of your your project that you did. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm glad that yeah. <laughs> you guys still remember what, when what I is, said the word globalization. Yeah, I was saying, well, yeah. Like, I was like, wait, I yeah. think you tackled this in your own research. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. so I guess a little background for my listeners. The pro so on this study of broad cores, um, you know, you don't really have any homework assignments or anything besides readings, of course, but it all um, accumulates to a final project that you do on a topic of your choosing. And my topic was on um, the effect of globalization on indigenous cultures, right, which includes actually with, a, with an emphasis on food, because I was looking at, you know, Coca-Cola, Pepsi coming in with 
junk food brands affecting um, you know child obesity rates. Um, so it's a really um, just a horrible thing, I guess, from the perspective of you know an indigenous culture and having an outsider coming in just destroying everything. I, that's a little harsh, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you explained their project and probably um, you you probably could have emphasized a lot more about it in a way that seems simpler than it was. But it was a really good project. Yeah. And I think it made you and a lot of the other students on the program very aware of what was around you uh, on every block of Antigua, but also the other towns that we visited. There are the tienditas. Mm-hmm. The bodegas or tienditas or just, you know, what we might um, consider sort of the uh, convenience store equivalents. Yeah. They're always open. There's one every block or more. Yeah. Just basically have your basic needs. And to see those basic needs be uh, fast food, prepackaged, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, you know, heavily... Uh, sugared yeah. and, uh, and for the most part imported, so foreign products, not local products, which means also, um, you know, with an enormous uh, ticket in you know, carbon, um, the carbon emissions that, that yeah. each one of those yeah. products carries attached to it, uh, all of those things that are that we've come to understand is really negative to any community, and to see them particularly prevalent in places um, with high populations of uh, indigenous people like in Guatemala Mm -hmm. or uh, places uh, where people um, are challenged by um, unequal access to goods and opportunities. And sometimes those two things obviously overlap, right? That's part of the problem that you were tackling in your research is looking at underserved communities, uh, impoverished communities, and indigenous communities, and what access they have to, uh, what what range of access to goods they have, uh, and finding that they really don't, mm-hmm. they don't have a lot of choice. Yeah. The choices they have are bad for them. And, uh, and then realizing that you guys were surrounded by this stuff yeah. also, right? that every time you wanted a snack, um, mm-hmm. You know, you yeah. also were eating some horrible kinds of... We, we definitely were, yeah. Right orange things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, because the danger is that they're cheap, right? So yeah, they're accessible. Ex- exactly. So that's time. why it's... You know, so late night lunches, early morning yeah. lunches. <laughs> yeah, all of those kinds of things. Yeah. yeah. So while I'm on the topic of globalization, I'm curious if... Casarena does anything to um, to sort of combat that trend, right? Like, you know, if it, because I know, you know, maybe through our study abroad trip by introducing us to indigenous, um, you know, weavers or, um, you know, indigenous Mayans that, you know, it gives us a sense of originality, right? Um, and that globalization hasn't intruded on those areas completely. So I was wondering if, you know, as a cultural heritage site, does it do anything to, you know, sort of advertise that originality of indigenous cultures? Does it, you know, well, I guess push back on that? Yeah. Right, I think, yeah. I think the mission of Casarera and of the Mesoamerican Center that we're sitting in right now is about um, increasing the visibility of the heritage of indigenous people from the Americas, and in particular from Mesoamerican cultures. Um, so that you don't have to be a scholar or an expert of uh, Mesoamerican archaeology, for example, to appreciate or learn something from the indigenous cultures of Mesoamerica. So that means um, study abroad programs like the one that you did, which are open to all majors, Mm -hmm. because as you found out, regardless of your major, uh, each student designs their own research project. So regardless of your major, you can design a research project that fits your interests, mm-hmm. your background, your goals. Um, obviously, those of us you know, here in the Mesoamerican Center and Casadera who, um, who, who have created the space and are engaged in working in it, um, you know, we're archaeologists by right. training. Right. Um, 
which he teaches in the art history department. And I think that sometimes that gives the impression to people that we do archaeology and we are art historians and our programs are all for art historians and archaeologists, but they're really not. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, I think since you've been there, we've expanded a number of our programs. Uh, and this year we'll have a program in public health. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll have a program from uh, in literature from other universities, not necessarily UT, mm -hmm. uh, but indigenous literature. Um, we have programs in education. Uh, we have programs in indigenous languages. Um, so all of these things are beyond what uh, myself and David Stewart, who's the director of the Mesmeric Center, what we do mm -hmm. and what our expertise is, what our background and our research focus. Um, it's much beyond that. And so the goal really is to, um, uh, to expand the definition of you know, what is Mesoamerica mm -hmm. and what that means and who are the people of Mesoamerica and, and in particular dispel some notions that people might have. The first one that comes to mind is the notions that Maya people are no longer around. Mm -hmm. A lot yeah. of people think that Maya people are a civilization of the past, that they no longer exist, that there's um, that they collapsed or that they were wiped out by the Spaniards or, you know, a number of faulty notions like mm -hmm. that. So one of the first missions of our education um, goals is to to really educate people about the fact that, that there are a lot of Maya people. There are several million Maya people in Guatemala alone who speak Maya languages, mm -hmm. several different Maya languages, who, as you mentioned, weaving, uh, maintain ancient weaving traditions, uh, food traditions, uh, you know, a number of different uh, aspects of the culture, uh, religious aspects, um, and uh, you know, a number of things that people have assumed are no longer exist. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's one of the important things that we try to do. And we do it with the study for our programs, but we also um, primarily on a day-to-day -day basis do it through public programming at Casaveda. And actually, mm. Millie could talk a little bit more about this because we have talks right now happening. Yeah. Um, I think every month we have at least one, if not more, activities um, right. for the public. So. so for me, that's really important because as Astrid said, you know, not everyone who's involved with the Mesoamerican culture or Casaveda are, you know, is an archaeologist. I'm not an mm -hmm. archaeologist. You know, I come from a contemporary art background and performing arts background. Um, but what ties me in with the whole mission is um, culturally, right? Just uh, the arts, um, and, and my um, I, I feel like my role more than anything is really focused on, on uh, creating more community-based uh, mm. education opportunities, right? Uh, to complement a lot of the academic activities that we do at conferences. So, for example, as Oscar mentioned, we do our, our conference, our public talks. Right. We did uh, four, no, five public talks this uh, semester right, that are completely open to the public in Antigua. Mm -hmm. uh, we do them both in English and Spanish. Um, we do them on a variety of different topics, um, basically just trying to get the community involved um, and understanding right, what the significance of having a facility like CASA is, right, and trying to understand, too, what our, what our goals are, which is, is basically to extend knowledge about indigenous cultures, um, about cultural heritage of the area, right? Um, so I feel really proud about that. I feel like every year we're, we're building you mm -hmm. know, on on that, and we have a, a really great base of people who constantly come to the talks at Casa mm -hmm. We're always waiting to find out. And they're not just coming from Antigua. We actually have a number of people coming from other cities in Guatemala. Right. Mm -hmm. People who drive in from Guatemala City or from Chimaltenango. Um, so, it, and as Melly said, it's building a community or a group of constituents that look forward to our events. Mm -hmm. um, and, and sometimes they come for um, films, sometimes they come for book presentations, mm -hmm. um, lectures, 
um, or other, you know, more hands-on activities or more interactive things. Like we, we have photo competitions, you know, mm. like the photo exhibit. You, yeah, I, yeah, I think, think I saw some of them. You know, students here on campus get to participate in uh, photo contests yeah. when they come back from study abroad programs. Um, but we also do uh, similar kinds of things at Castaneda where, for example, uh, people can submit photos from whatever different theme we have selected for the year. And, uh, yeah, and even our public talks are very varied. You know, we've had um, talks about uh, contemporary Maya religion, mm. uh, about uh, visual culture, right, um, of the area, um, archaeology, of course, anthropology, colonial history. Bilingual uh, education. Bilingual education. Really well received, um, because, of course, a lot of people uh, who speak a Maya language, uh, and, and, of course, also Spanish, mm -hmm. um, are grappling with some of these issues. Do, do you raise your children bilingual? Do you um, want them to learn a Maya language in school? Those are um, those are topics that are not only scholarly topics for the people who are maybe researching um, and working in Guatemala for their research and presenting the topic, but they're topics that are relevant and real tangible issues mm -hmm. for the people who live there. Right. Who might, you know, have those very questions about their own families. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's been wonderful to see the kinds of people that come to different activities, right? When we have um, uh, my language presentations, um, we get a lot of um, educators from areas like Chimacanango who work in schools, who are specialists in my language, or maybe who just want some additional information, right? Um, we have expats who come in, some expats who, you know, have been living in Antigua for like 50 years and they're well established, and others who are just passing through who have no idea what Mesoamerica is, mm -hmm. who the ancient Maya are, and they're just curious, right? Um, so we got a little bit of everybody, and, I, and that really, um, that really pleases me, because mm -hmm. I feel like our, our base is very broad. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Do you see any you know, new initiatives being spurred on by those talks? Because you talk about um, having such a diversity in the audience, right? So do you see, you know, maybe in different cities that there are different initiatives popping up? or? Um, what, I, what I feel, which is a conversation that I had with um, the director of um, uh, Casa Popeno, this was uh, maybe about four years ago, that um, we had had conversations uh, between different centers, and our objective was to really be able to offer the city of Antigua uh, a lot more variety mm. in terms of opportunities for education and culture. Um, and so I think, I'm not sure about you know the surrounding communities, uh, but in Antigua, I feel like a lot of the cultural centers or academic centers are, are really trying to work together um, and to provide activities that are accessible. Mm. Um, and I, for me personally, I feel like there's been there's been a lot going on these last couple of years. Um, there are more um, like like uh, there's a new um, uh, arts organization that's called Viva. That two years ago they started the Festival of Flowers in Antigua, mm. uh, which basically they invite all the neighbors, kind of like a like a super super mini version of Semana Santa, right? Where it's like the one time in the year that you really see the entire city get mm -hmm. organized to make this event happen. So now there are all these like little micro events where you know centers oh, are working together, you know, working with neighbors to try and you know create additional opportunities. I, I think that's important also because there's a bit of a paradox. We talked about Antigua as this uh, colonial center of history and culture, and you know it used to be the capital. Uh, it, during the colonial period, this was, you know, one of the most important cities in Spanish America, um, and by that it was a, it was a cultural capital. It had one it, the first printing press in Central America. Um, it had some of, uh, it, you know, the, the first uh, university in Guatemala. These were um, all features of a cultural capital. But when the move to Guatemala City in the late 1700s, all of those institutions also moved to Guatemala City. And that means that the uh, the majority of universities in Guatemala are in Guatemala City, not in Antigua. Mm -hmm. right. And so when you think about that, to me it seems like a paradox that we have this uh, great colonial 
city as a center of culture, but in a bit, in, in a way, it's a bit of a culture of the past, mm-hmm. right? And to maintain a contemporary active cultural set of activities, you have to work a little harder to bring people there mm-hmm. because there are not, you know, there, there's essentially no university students around. And think about it, university students are what keeps a place engaged with, um, you know, intellectual and cultural activities and ideas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's the never-ending fountain of youth. Yeah, yeah. And that's a little bit lacking there, right? And so I think that what Milady is saying is that all the small cultural centers or places like Casarera that are extensions of foreign universities or, or even universities in Guatemala, for example, um, Milady mentioned Casa Popena, and that is a museum of colonial uh, house that is managed by... Um, Universidad Francisco Marroquín, mm. which is in Guatemala City, but has this museum and cultural center in Antigua. So all of these centers are sort of bonding together to create, um, to fill a gap a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. And I think if we had, you know, university headquartered in Antigua, it would it would sort of happen by itself. Yeah, I think there are a lot of well, I this past year I joined uh, one of the a Rotary Club in Antigua, and part of our our mission in the club is to kind of inspire more civic responsibility among people who are living in Antigua. Mm-hmm. Because unfortunately, uh, because of all the tourism that's coming in, right, um, people kind of think, oh, we're going to go to Antigua to party. Yeah. Right? We're going to go to Antigua to have a good time. Yeah. Right? It's not like, oh, I'm going to go to Antigua to visit the Museo de Arte Colombian. I feel like today colonial art today, right? Um, so we're also competing with this this idea of uh, Antigua kind of being this hub of entertainment, mm-hmm. you know, that has this um, this old world appeal, right? Because it becomes it's this romantic atmosphere, yeah, yeah. right? Um, and I think people forget that there are a lot of great cultural places to visit in Antigua, right, where you can learn something too. It's not just about you know, going to a club, having a couple of drinks, and then, you know, driving back to Guatemala City. Right, yeah. Going to hostel, you know. Taking um, a lot of selfies in front of the really far and Yeah. Right, right. And there's so much actually going inside the building. Yeah. Right, yeah. I mean, it's actually, it made me think about you, because I wanted to bring this up. I was reading, I think, I don't have my phone on me right now, but... I think it's uh, Travel and Leisure, the, mm. uh, the magazine just released their 50 top destinations for 2019. You know how at the end of the yeah. year, you know, yeah. collate these kinds of things, like your, your new bucket list for 2019 destinations. And it listed 50 places all around the world. Mm. But the photograph, the image that was at the top, so the, the splash page for it, mm-hmm was the yellow arch of Santa Catarina in Antigua. Oh, wow. But they took to in front of it, driving yeah. across. And, you know, the whole thing was glowing in this beautiful yellow light. And it, to me, it was immediately recognizable. And I saw it, and I thought, oh, Antigua made the list. <laughs> and sure enough, it was somewhere down. I kind of scrolled yeah. through a few um, before I got to the description of it. But it immediately jumped out, and, and people are really responding to things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and tourism is becoming... I think uh, more global than what I remember it. I remember there were always definitely, American tourists, definitely. There, for sure. But I think that there's a lot more European tourists um, than there used to be, or Japanese hmm. tourists. Um, so Antigua is making it on a lot of lists. I think uh, that are, that you know people are finding out, and of course it's making it on a lot of Instagram feeds because yeah. it's so photogenic. And so <laughs> yeah. that's I. I understand how people are picking their destinations these days is by looking at pictures yeah. and, and then flooding places, yeah. some of which are trying to keep people out now because yeah. you know, too, too much tourism is actually yeah. a bad thing for yeah. heritage sites. Yeah. It's, you know, it seems like a paradox or um, an oxymoron, but in fact, it could actually be destructive too. So I think Antigua is always uh, trying to balance the two yeah. extremes of too much uh, tourism, not enough tourism. Yeah. And, and the kind of tourism yeah. that comes there, right? Exactly. So, yeah. If it's entertainment only, then it's not really doing much for the community, or or it's not really helping the city preserve 
this colonial UNESCO world heritage. Like I said, yeah, you know, there's a lot that goes into trying to protect the place, um, even from having too many fast food joints. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, there, it's, there's a lot of difficult balances that people have to, to try and find. Yeah, you know, living there or participating in maintaining the city for what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we move on to another topic, that was perfect transition into one of Felicia's questions, um, and I want to acknowledge it before she gets mad at me. Um, uh, let's see here. Okay, well, so. she has certainly gone off to study something that was inspired in part by her semester um, study. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah, I mean, a lot of her interest in heritage and the LBJ school um, for her uh, for her masters hmm. is still very involved with the topics that we all discussed during yeah. the study abroad program. So yeah. it's always gratifying to see when students are yeah. still interested in the kinds of things that they were interested, you know, you guys were there two years ago. Yeah, exactly. And to yeah. know that those interests are still alive a couple of years later is, is very gratifying because yeah. I'm very well aware that students could be really inspired by something and then, you know, five minutes later be on to something totally different. <laughs> so it's always great to see. Yeah. So she asks, um, and I think you guys already touched on this, but she asks, what is the cultural significance or communal impact of preserving cultural heritage sites and items? How can the preservation of the past influence the present? Um, yeah. And I think we, we touched, uh, you know, a lot on those topics, but um, I don't know if you guys have any yeah. additional. Well, um, maybe I'll think about this in broad philosophical terms. No, I, I definitely yeah. welcome but that. Yeah. Does, yeah. It, you know, she's especially asking, why should we bother exactly. to preserve the past? Yeah. That's an interesting question to ask an archaeologist because, you know, it's the whole, <laughs> the whole of my, uh, you know, my academic and and personal interest is to be aware of the past and, and to be aware of why it's relevant to the present and the future. And I think um, for me in particular, some of it does come from uh, growing up in Italy and uh, being surrounded by ancient cities or ancient things and um, to the point of taking it for granted. And um, I remember, for example, uh, when I drove with my mom to her office at the University of Padua, we would park in an underground garage under the building that her office was in. And there were these old walls down there. And uh, they were Roman walls hmm. that were excavated in the process of creating this garage and this building, and then sort of incorporated into the garage, a kind of separated off and maintained and, you know, with the sign explaining what they were. And, and I remember things like that all around my upbringing. And I never really thought about the fact that those are intentional uh, decisions to preserve and maintain something from the past and not just erase it in the process of building something new. Mm -hmm. uh, so every time we knock down a building, I mean, you know, think about East Austin now, it's being yeah. gentrified so fast that we don't even really know everything that was there. We haven't uh, put enough time into processing what some of those communities were like and recording them and maintaining the information about those histories before there's a new apartment complex there. Yeah. And um, so I think that, that some of those things are important and relevant no matter where you are in the world. But having grown up in Italy, I think I, um, I became aware that not every country has, uh, you know, those, um, has a record of such deep history right. around you on a daily basis. And that seemed to me that it was, it's, it's worth uh, working towards that in any country, regardless of where you are. So whether it's Antigua and the past of uh, Guatemalan history, Maya history, colonial history, uh, all of the aspects of history that make up what Guatemala is today. Those are worth being aware of, teaching about in school, uh, preserving it, and making and pre 
preserving it in a way that makes it tangible, mm -hmm. right? That you can you can touch the walls, you can see that there. But it's not just information that you're preserving. That's a lot harder for people to interact with on a daily basis. I think that material things are important, and that's the archaeologist in me, right? Right, you right, yeah. You study, <laughs> study material things to get at the lives of people, um, but I think that we all interact. Uh, no matter how digital our lives become, we all interact with tangible material things on a daily basis. Those are the things that matter. And um, what we engage with, with our own senses, so sight and smell and touch, all of those things are important. They're an important source of memories. Mm -hmm. Things are triggered by your senses that way. And I think that um, material things of the past uh, are an important way in which we engage with the reality around us. And to constantly erase the past to make space for new things, it's not, I don't know, it's a disservice mm -hmm. to, our, to our present, but in particular to our future. Yeah. And just the identity of people, right? I mean, when I think that my family's originally from El Salvador, and I think part of the reason, well, I know a huge reason, a huge reason why I stayed so long in Guatemala is that I, I really felt that that search of trying to figure out where is my place, you know, mm -hmm. where do I fit in, mm -hmm. you know, I grew up in the States, but I'm parents are from El Salvador, I speak the language, but El Salvador doesn't really, I mean, it's, it's just all jumbled up. For a long mm -hmm. time, I was like, I don't, I don't know really how to define myself. And then when I went to Antigua and just having the opportunity to see this long history, just like Esther said, um, it really, it really triggers something in me, and I think one, one particular place, talking about preserving uh, the past, right, and informing the future is uh, Ishinche. That's one of my favorite archaeological sites in Guatemala, and I think the reason why, for me, it's so special is because I mean it's centuries, centuries old, but it's such a huge part of my identity today. It's an active space. That get used that gets used by Maya people hmm. every day for Maya ceremonies, right? Or gatherings, or just going to have lunch with your family. It's such an integral part of that community. Um, and that means also that it, it, it comes to have an an important political role in contemporary Maya communities. Um, it's not just a place, you know, for families and entertainment or for religious practices, but those very things, the ability to practice Maya religious uh, ceremonies and traditions in a, a protected archaeological site is um, it's a political victory for contemporary indigenous people mm -hmm. in Guatemala. And um, the ability to be able to, the ability to go to Ishimche mm -hmm. for a Maya ceremony um, kind of um, encompasses a long journey to arrive at that point. It, ha it wasn't always that way. Right? And a lot of times, my people have had to hide their own uh, religious practices. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. They've had to be, um, they've had to be concerned for their lives about even uh, showing their identity, wearing traditional uh, clothing uh, that advertised their indigenous identity um, all throughout the Civil War. Of course, this was a really you know, a, a tangible danger. Um, but even after the Civil War, a lot of um, uh, racist inequalities and, um, mm -hmm. and uh, differential treatment of people uh, has made indigenous people very aware of their identity, sometimes in positive ways, sometimes in negative ways. Mm -hmm. And so uh, being able to see Ishinche as an active place um, that my families are comfortable in and that is actively used every day. Uh, like I said, it's it's also a, a political statement. So heritage is important, um, you know, for the ways that the lady and I both recounted about our own personal lives. Mm -hmm. But it's important also for bigger communities, for entire um, ethnic groups, for um, you know, for a whole nation. So there, heritage is an important notion at so many different scales. That you can make it very personal, and very much about your own identity and your own life, but you can also really make it about group identity and um, the community you belong to. Yeah, wow, that's great. Well, there you go, Felicia. Thank you. Uh <laughs>
Thank you for the question. Um, and we're almost out of time, and there's no good transition to do this, but Cheyenne also had a question, so I want to, um, you know, give her the chance to speak out. So she asks, um, can you speak on any of the challenges you faced being female professionals in your fields? And I'm also curious about that. I don't know. Well, I'm not sure how to, how to answer this. My first instinct is to say, what challenges? Um, everything's great. And then <laughs> the truth is that we, we do, we always face challenges. Um, I'm not sure that I can describe any particular one moment or turning point. Um, sometimes I think the part that's most difficult is to deal with the fact that, um, um, you know, there's no gender equality in the workplace um, today, not yet. Um, I'm not despairing. I think it's in the future and maybe even in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, but there are realities that remind you in very subtle ways on a daily basis. And I think that's what really, uh, what I find really challenging is that it sort of erodes at your confidence um, without being major punctuated events. And for some people, there are those two. Um, maybe being denied a job even though they were uh, perfectly capable or things like that, that might be you know, major, um, major challenges. But I think it's the, the small day-to-day -day challenges um, that are the stuff that is really hard to, to, you know, to find a practical solution for. How do I deal with that? It just irritates you. It yeah. gets under your skin. It reminds you that things aren't equal, that if you had been um, you know, a male professor, maybe something wouldn't have happened quite that way. And I'll, I'll give you an example of just you know, small things that um, I'm not the only one to notice. And actually, you can look this up. You'll find that a lot of people have noticed and tracked this. But um, oftentimes, when you are teaching, even uh, at a university, um, so meaning you're already in, a, in an environment where people are generally aware of uh, social realities. And, and, I, and I don't mean that uh, people are doing this intentionally, but there's an expectation that um, male professors, by default, have PhDs and are professors. And women, not necessarily. And so oftentimes, even though your professors, no matter what class you take, all have PhDs, and they're all professor, whatever their last name is, mm -hmm. Professor Collins, okay. um, I often get called Miss, mm. and I'm not the only one. I'm not necessarily Dr. Ramovere or Professor Ramovere. I'm Miss Ramovere in speaking mm. and in emails. And in emails, when you're writing, it takes a little bit more intentionality, or you have a moment to catch yourself and say, yeah. wait a second, I should probably say, dear Professor Ramovere. Um, but it's something that whoever's doing is not even realizing they're doing it, and they're not realizing that this is this is a gender-based discrimination that's based on an assumption of abilities, um, career, you know, mm -hmm. just comparisons that are unfair. And, uh, you know, maybe you haven't noticed it before, um, but if you ask, if you, if you ask people about this, you'll find that a lot of experience it. Mm. And then, you know, there's, um, at the university, you would have the expectation that um, that you've kind of outlived the prejudice that that people might have about women being elementary school teachers or high school teachers, or you know, regardless of what level you teach at, you should have the same respect and credentials as mm -hmm. your male counterpart. And it's not quite there. Yeah. It's not quite equal. Yeah. <laughs> so for all of those, <laughs> <laughs> you're right at email. Yeah, always address. Yeah, exactly. No matter what. <laughs>
can never go wrong. Yeah, I mean, I always just found that to be, like, such an easy rule to follow. Like, you know, you don't have to look up specifically what the credentials of a professor is. Just call well, him or her professor, right? right? Like, right, right. I feel like that's just, I don't know. Well, yeah. I think my experience is I was very fortunate that um, early on in my professional career, um, I always work with uh, females. In reality, it's funny, all my bosses have been women. Mm. Um, and it wasn't until I started my job at Cantarera that I had to work with all men. That was very different for me. Um, and it was very challenging because not only did I have to get used to being in a new place and a new country, but I had to learn a completely new job culture mm. um, that's very different from the States. Um, and things that Astrid mentioned, I mean, as you know, Quinn, right, there's uh, uh, a lot of machismo. I was just about to say that, yeah. In Latin yeah. America, yeah. right, male chauvinism for, yeah. for uh, those who are listening who don't speak Spanish. Um, so you're always, I mean, for myself, I'm always trying to negotiate my role as a female professional, right? When I first started at Casa Neda, one of the things that used to drive me crazy whenever I had to interact with um the uh, original homeowners or the representatives was that they always, I always, I always felt like they treated me like a little girl. Mm. And so for three years straight, I used to wear business clothes to Casa Neda every day. I used to wear heels to work. And you know how those cobblestone yeah, shoes are. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. But I did that so people would take me seriously. And I remember there was one time, um, there was a, a visitor from Guatemala, um, very uh, high-end kind of guy, and I remember he shook my hand, and I made sure that I grabbed his hand really strongly, and he was like, oh, wow, he's like, I like your your handshake, because that's not like most women around here. <laughs> so, um, it's been, it's been really, it's been really interesting for me, you know, going from one scenario where I was used to working with women, right, and then going from one that was the complete other extreme. Mm -hmm. um, and having to manage men, too, who some of them might have machismo tendencies, mm -hmm. right, um, and don't like to take lip from a woman, right, it's, it's hard. It's hard. Um, and it was funny because I'm, I'm naturally just my personality. I'm a really nice person, right? And I think part of me, when I do my uh, on-site orientations with students and I, and I address the females in the group, for me that's really important to mention because um, I had to tone it down a lot. And it's funny because, you know, I always, I always tell you guys, oh, yeah, you know, Guatemalans are very courteous, you know, mm -hmm. they're very kind, which is true, which is true. But as a female, you really have to watch it. And I would see, I would observe some of, you know, the, the other female professionals that I worked with, and I would think, how oh, you know, they're actually, they're actually pretty, like, they're stern. Not, they're stern, yeah. They're, like, not nice. And for me, that just seemed, like, so against who I who I am naturally, yeah. right? I just can't help being friendly, right? But you don't want to be taken advantage of. But you don't want to be taken advantage of, or send these messages. Right. Um, so it's, it's, it's tough. It's really tough. And it's something that I think as women, we negotiate wherever we live in the world mm -hmm. every day. Yeah. Right. And, and also, I'm sure it depends on what you do, you know, the right. different lines of work that you're in. I mentioned, you know, one context um, here on campus. and in the academic context of teaching classes and interacting with students. But the other part of my life, the you know, field archeology span component of it, is another world that you can imagine mm -hmm. um, does not immediately bring to mind uh, women archeologists. Right. Um, but I would have to say that I've been really lucky as a Mayanist um, to work in areas where there are a lot of women archaeologists, and they have been my mentors and my role models. I can't say the same if I had worked in another part of the world in archaeology. I'm not sure that I can speak to that. Um, but for the Maya part, uh, uh, the, the Mayanists working in Guatemala and Belize in particular, um, there's a lot of women directors of projects. Um, I had a lot of women professors, and I still have a lot of women colleagues. Um, I work in a project in Belize that is almost, I would say, there are more women in the project, mm -hmm. including the director. Um, 
that there are men. And so I think for me um, that I've been just lucky and, uh, and I've had the opportunity to, you know, to learn from people. I've had the opportunity to have role models that I could learn from. And I think that that's important to other women archaeologists who might not have quite the same, uh, quite the same situations if they're working in different parts of the world where that's not the case. So um, even though I've been lucky, I don't take it for granted. I'm well aware of the fact that I just where I happen to be and when um, has given me the opportunity to not feel like marginalized or doubted or mm -hmm. challenged in ways that I've, I've discussed with other colleagues who have had very different experiences. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Uh, thank you both for that perspective. And thank you, Cheyenne, for that question. Um, so usually I like to end my podcast with any last words from uh, from my guests. So if you guys have any final so messages, yeah. On a happy note. <laughs> on a happy happy holiday. Yeah. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. On a happy note, this is your third podcast, I understand. Yeah. So I am wishing you many, many more. And I hope you get to talk to a lot of the professors that you are you have on your list and um, that you want to tap for information you never asked yeah. when you were taking our classes. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, thank you both for such a great conversation. I learned a lot. And, uh, you know, I definitely want to do a part two in the future. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that'd be great. Anyway. Sounds wonderful. Great. Thanks for having me. And there you have it. Uh, I, again, I apologize for the sound quality, but Dr. Rungledee and Millie are such great people to talk to, and I'm afraid this episode didn't really do them justice, but I highly encourage you to reach out to them personally if you're ever interested in their specialty areas. Um, it's such a cool subject and so unique. Um, but anyway, so before I leave you guys, I just want to talk about the study abroad course that was discussed. Uh, we didn't really get to it, but it's called Brit Bridging Cultures in Latin America, Maya and Colonial Heritage in Guatemala and Belize. The application deadline is usually November 1st, so this past one already passed, but next year should be the same time. There's a class you take in the spring in preparation for it, um, but it's not you know, not intense at all. It's very casual, very, um, very chill. Um, and on the study abroad trip itself, it was such a great time. We visited Tikal, a famous Mayan site. Um, we stayed on Key Cocker, which is an island off the coast of Belize. Um, and Antigua, Guatemala is just a great town um, in itself. Um, you stay with the host family, and my friends and I watched the NBA finals there. So, it was, uh, it was just a great trip in general. There's barely any homework, just a final presentation. Um, yeah, so I highly encourage you to check it out. Um, and yeah, have a great break, and I'll see you next time.